if you're visiting with us this morning, we're studying all the way through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday morning, and we find ourselves in Luke 9, verse 23, and I've entitled this message this morning, Denial, Death, and Obedience, Part 2, as we're going to look at the second part of these verses. Luke 9, verse 23, Luke says this, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them all, that is the disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory." and in his fathers, and of the holy angels. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, this morning as we come before you with humble hearts and thankful hearts and grateful hearts, Lord, for all that you've done and all that you are and all that you've given. And Lord, as we advance now into this Christmas season, may our hearts be very tender toward your truths, and may we be very appreciative of the fact, Lord, that you, Jesus, became a man that the Son of God became a Son of Man as you were taking on human flesh and living among us and experiencing all of life and the hurts and the pains and the joys of, of living as a man on this earth. And then ultimately, you went to the cross to die for us. And so, Jesus, you were born to die. We remember that. We thank you for that. We lift our hearts in praise before you in just gratefulness for all that you've done. May you bless us this morning, Lord, as we present ourselves to you in the reading and the hearing and the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Jesus is giving us here in this portion of Scripture the cost of discipleship. What does it cost? What is required to follow him and be one of his, to be called by his name? And Jesus isn't hiding anything. He's laying it all out on the table. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be called by my name, if you're going to be one of my disciples in this world, this is what it takes. This is what is required of you. And it's very opposite of the systems of this world as they so often hide the cost of association, don't they? They dangle the prize, but they camouflage the cost. They want you to see all of the goodies of joining their organization or their fellowship or buying their product, no matter what it is, but they don't tell you what the cost of it is until later. And that's why we tell people, be careful of the fine print in the contract, because when you sign a contract, generally, the devil's in the details, as they say. you got to go back and look at all of the details of what's hidden in the cost of that contract, but not with Jesus. Not at all. He doesn't work like that. He says very upfront, this is what is required of me. This is what it takes to be one of mine and to be called by my name. And he tells us right there in verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And there it is. If you're going to be mine in this world, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to live for me, here's what is required. You're going to have to deny yourself. You are going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to follow me denying yourself, admitting, confessing that there is no righteousness in us and that we are not an end to ourselves, but that we follow Christ. Taking up our cross, willing to suffer in this world for Jesus, even in some cases, literally willing to lay down our lives to be his. 
and then following him, to live for him and with him in obedience in this world. That's what's required. So that's the pronouncement we have. That's what Jesus claims. This is what it is. This is what is set before you. This is the path that I have established. Now count the cost if you want to be one of my disciples. And then verse 24, verse 25 and verse 26 are now the supporting explanation for what he's just said. He said, this is what's required, and now he'll explain it in these next three verses. Because the thinking mind says, why? Why would Jesus say that we need to deny ourselves, we need to take up our cross, and we need to follow him? And especially at that time, the cross would have been very offensive. We can talk about the cross today, and it's become a neat little symbol that people use, and they put all over the place, and they put it on bumper stickers, and they wear it on shirts and around their neck and these kinds of things. So the cross isn't really offensive to us today. But the cross at that time would have been extremely offensive. That was the Romans' instrument of death to punish and crucify people and to make them suffer when they were doing it. And so the thinking mind, the critical mind, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, says, why? Why would Jesus command us to take up our cross and follow him? Why would he call us to live this kind of life? Why would he call us to die to ourselves and to live in obedience to him? And he says there in verse 24, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's an interesting statement. And he actually intensifies what he just said. He told us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. And here he says, even further, if you desire to save your life, you're going to lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. And you can look at that and think, well, what does that mean? What's Jesus talking about? If I try and save my life, I'm going to lose it. If I lose my life, I'm going to save it. Is he talking in riddles? What is this saying that Jesus is giving us here? Jesus is intimating here that the world that we live in is dying, and everything in this world is dying. We are all on a ship headed toward destruction, headed toward death. And everything that we know is headed toward this place of death and destruction. And we know that's true just from our own observation, from our own eyes. Every person that we know is dying. Every person from the past has died. Every person on this planet of 7.1 billion people is going to die someday. We know that. Every person, every tree, every animal, everything that's living, and even, you might say, inanimate objects, and that even those are wearing away and disappearing. So everything is headed toward death and destruction. Remember back in the uh, 30s, well, not that we remember back in the 30s, some of you might, but back in the 1930s, there was a little Shirley Temple, and she sang, I'm on the good ship lollipop, you know? And that was a cute little saying, I'm on the good ship. I'm not going to sing it for you. Anyway, lollipop. But um, we're not on the good ship lollipop. We're on the bad ship that's headed toward death and destruction. Whatever rhyme you can come up with lollipop, that's the ship that we're on. And Jesus is saying that if you go along with this world and the system of this world and the priorities and the values of this world, you will suffer destruction. You will perish. You will die. So don't try and save your life in this world. That's what Jesus is saying. Peter said this in his second epistle, 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. 
both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And Peter is saying, this is the end. You want to know what the end of the world is? It's coming. There's a consuming fire. And some people have speculated, and we don't know whether or not it's true because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically how this is going to happen. Some people have speculated that because the Bible says in Christ, in Jesus, all things consist, that in the end, the final judgment will be nothing more than Jesus just letting go and turning loose as everything just comes apart right down to the atomic level. And everything is just vaporized in this massive nuclear, thermonuclear explosion. Whether that's the way it's going to happen or not, we don't know. But Peter does tell us that everything that we see and everything that we know on planet Earth is going to be judged in a consuming fire. It's the final and coming judgment. Just as God destroyed the world with a flood in Noah's time. Remember that Noah, in the pre-flood world, was building the ark. And we feel that it took Noah about 120 years to build that ark. And so as he's building, and the New Testament tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So as he's building that ark, he is preaching. He's preaching about this coming judgment. And though once again, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but you can imagine that people are scoffing him and mocking him and saying, Noah, what are you talking about? And Noah's saying, listen, there is a coming judgment because of the wickedness of this world, because of the sin of this world. God will not continue to allow the sin to increase, and he's going to bring it to a final judgment. People would have laughed. Oh, yeah, right, Noah. Sure. Where is this God of yours? Where is this judgment? Why are you building that big boat? Because he's going to destroy the world by a flood. Noah, what's a flood? They would have had no idea what he's talking about. And sure enough, they did not listen to the preaching of Noah. And sure enough, the destruction came, and the whole world, except for Noah, And his family and those on that boat, the animals on that boat, everything else was destroyed. There is a judgment coming. And the next time, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, God is not going to destroy the world with water or a flood. He's going to destroy it all by fire. This whole thing is going to perish. Everyone outside of the Lord Jesus Christ will be consumed in the judgment. It sounds a little too spectacular to be true. People can say, wait a second. I'm a sophisticated person. I'm educated. I understand science. I understand history. I'm well-read. A Renaissance man. Are you telling me literally that God is going to judge this world? I mean, come on. Do you really expect an educated mind to believe that? That's exactly what they were saying in the days of Noah. Noah looked so foolish building that big boat. How much money and time and resource did he he spend in building an ark? He looked so silly to everyone who was observing him. But when that first raindrop fell and those waters began to rise, Noah was the only, and his family were the only wise ones on planet earth. And that's exactly how it will be in the next judgment. People will not listen because they don't want to hear. They don't want to believe that God will judge sin. But the Bible is very clear. It's coming. This world is going to perish. And I wouldn't bet a nickel against the word of God. I wouldn't bet a nickel against the word of God. The Bible says it's going to happen. It will happen. The Bible always gets its prophecies correct. Do you recognize that the Bible is so specific in some of its prophecies? It even told us that they would gamble for the clothing of Jesus on the cross. And that's exactly what they did. They cast lots for his clothing while he was dying. If the Bible can get that kind of precise prophecy correct, you know that what it says about the end times is correct as well. 
There is a coming judgment. This world is perishing. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying if you try and save your life in this world, if you try to become a success, and you try to attain and gain all that this world has, but you deny me, you are going to suffer loss. You are going to lose your life. You see, this world is sinful, and it lives in rebellion to God, and it celebrates that rebellion. I mean, look at the entertainment industry today. Probably 90, 95% of what you watch or hear in entertainment today in the world is a repudiation of what we're given here in Scripture. It celebrates the rebellion and sin against God. Because a righteous life, according to the world standards, is boring. You can't sell tickets or entertainment for that. No, they've got to give you something that's titillating, something that's tantalizing, something that pushes the limits. And so they celebrate and they sell sin. I just read this last week, speaking about our sinful world, that a body of a 14-year-old girl was found in a dumpster in Arizona. And we've just become too used to this kind of thing. And I'm thankful that it doesn't happen every day. But here's a, a young girl, and I have three daughters, and so I'm tender to these kinds of things when I read them in the news. But kidnapped, taken, and then her body discovered in a dumpster in Arizona. And we've become too used to this kind of news that goes on in the nation. We read it, and we look at it, and our hearts maybe feel for a moment for it, and then we turn the page and take another drink of coffee. This world is given over to sin, and this world will not always continue to live in sin. This world will not always continue to exploit one another and to rebel against God, just as in the days of Noah, as Noah was preaching and saying, this is not always going to go on like this, though the people wouldn't heed his advice. This world is marked by judgment. That's part of the Christian worldview. This world is going to be judged. It's just like from the Old Testament, Belshazzar the Babylonian. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Remember that great king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one who led his troops under his power, under his time of authority. He took his troops and they captured Jerusalem. This is during the time of Daniel, and they brought the captives back to Babylon. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar passed off the scene, Belshazzar, his son, became the following king. And he was full of himself, and he was lifted up in pride, and he was all about his own pleasure. And so one night he's throwing a great party, and he's having fun and enjoying himself and living in his flesh, just like the parties of today, as people are getting drunk and taking part in all of the debaucheries. And during the party, he says to his servants, go and bring the vessels from the temple that we might toast our gods with them. Now, what he was talking about were the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. When his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered Jerusalem, he had brought back all of the vessels and all the gold and all the instruments from the temple to Babylon. Well, perhaps he had them in storage or set away somewhere. But during this this party, Belshazzar wants to use them for his own glory, for his own perverse delights. God had intended these vessels for the temple, for his worship, for his glory, for his grace, for his goodness. Yet Belshazzar says, I'm going to use them for my partying. So they bring in the vessels and they begin to toast their gods. And he's got his wives and his concubines there and just as sinful parties go. And then right in the middle of the party when they think they're having the grandest time and that he's sitting on top of the world, a hand appears from heaven and this finger of God begins to write on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. 
And that stops the party, as you can imagine. It shakes Belshazzar to the core. What in the world is this? And what does it mean? Where did this come from? So the queen comes to Belshazzar. She says, listen, in your dad's day, there was a guy named Daniel, a prophet of the living God. And he could interpret dreams, and he knew what God was speaking and saying. Let's call him. Belshazzar says, great, great idea. Bring him in. And if he will give us the understanding of what this writing is on the wall, we will make him wealthy. I'll make him the third most powerful man in the whole kingdom. Well, Daniel shows up on the scene, and he says, no, no, keep your stuff. I don't want your things. Give the promotion to someone else. But I will tell you what this writing is, because indeed, it is from God. Many, many, tekel parson. And it means that God has weighed your kingdom, Belshazzar, and it is finished. It's been marked for judgment, and it is done. And you, in particular, Belshazzar, have been weighed in the balance, and you have been found wanting, and your kingdom has been divided, and it is now given to the Medes and the Persians. And that night, his kingdom fell to the Medes and the Persians. As Daniel was giving this understanding of the hand and the writing on the wall, the Medes and the Persians were literally at the gates. You see, just like Belshazzar, this world loves its sin, and it thinks that it can use the things that God has intended for his glory and his praise and his worship and use it for the most disgusting, abominable actions as we praise ourselves and we worship ourselves and we celebrate our sin. God says, no, no. You have been weighed in the balance your kingdom will fall. You see, God is going to judge this world. There is a consequence for sin. And that is a consistent theme in the Bible all the way through. Adam and Eve suffered because of a consequence of their sin. The pre-flood world suffered as a consequence of their sin. The Jewish nation, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, they suffered as a consequence of their sin. Babylon suffered as a consequence of its sin. Rome suffered as a consequence of its sin. There is a judgment for sin. And I know that a lot of pastors and preachers don't want to talk about that today because it offends people. But it's the truth of the word of God. God is going to judge sin in this world. And that's why Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, a lot of times we concentrate on that having everlasting life, and that's good, and we should. But we forget that Jesus says, shall not perish. What's he talking about there? Shall not perish. Jesus is saying that everything in this world, and that everything that follows and obeys and believes in, in the system of this world, is going to perish in judgment and destruction. That's what Jesus was saying. And if you come to me, if you place your faith in me, you will not perish. You will have everlasting life. You see, you don't get off the ship until you are convinced that the ship is sinking. When the Titanic went down that fateful night, they never filled up any of the lifeboats. Not a single lifeboat that night went out full. Initially, because the, the crew did not believe that the ship was really sinking, and then eventually, when they recognized that the ship was going down, it was so chaotic and so out of control on the deck that they could not fill up the boats efficiently. But nobody gets off a ship until they are convinced that it is perishing. And Jesus is saying, this world is perishing. It's dying. It's marked for judgment. Get off that boat and get into the lifeboat. Place your faith in me. 
Jesus, the Son of God. And that's exactly why Jesus says here that whoever saves his life according to his own efforts, according to his own righteousness, and according to the definitions of this world will lose his life. Because all in this world, everything in this world is going to be lost. But the person who loses his life, Jesus says, ironically, will gain his life. He will keep his life. He will save his life. And when Jesus says there that the person who loses his life, it's the Greek word apolomai, and it means to ruin or destroy. So Jesus is saying whoever loses his life, whoever destroys his life, whoever ruins it in the sense of according to this world's definitions of keeping it and saving it, whoever ruins it or destroys it in that sense is going to gain it. You see... If we do it for the sake of Jesus, if we lose our life, if we destroy our life, if we, if we ruin our life by serving him, by worshiping him, and living according to his plan and his word, we will save it. And how many of you have heard, perhaps you're the first Christian in your family, you're the only one that's serving the Lord in your family, you come from a, a non-Christian background, and now they know that you've given your life to Christ and you're serving him and you're living for him, and you're going to church, and you're giving of your time, and your resources, and your talents to the Lord, how many of, of you have even heard someone in your family say, what are you doing that for? What a waste. You're ruining your life. You're destroying your life. You're going to lose your life. When you hear that, say, amen. Thank you. What a compliment. Because Jesus said, when I lose my life, I will gain my life. This is a mystery. If we try and save our life, we'll lose it. If we lose our life, we'll gain it. It's a conundrum, as they say. It's the opposite of the world's thinking. But that's what the Bible gives us according to the kingdom of God. There are so many opposites in this book, in God's definitions of the kingdom, compared to this world. The two are kingdoms in opposition to one another, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. For instance, Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 11 and 12. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now that's confusing, isn't it? Because that's exactly opposite of what the world says. The world says, if you want to be great in this world, climb the ladder. Step on whomever you need to step on. Abuse people. Cut corners. Do what you need to do to get to the top because that's where the valuable life is. And Jesus says, no, no. That's not where the valuable life is. The one that's going to be great is the one who humbles themselves and serves me and serves their brothers and sisters in Christ. If you exalt yourself, if you do compromise and cut corners and you step on people, you will be brought low. You will be brought into judgment. And it's exactly opposite of what the world teaches. We are taught that the way up in this world is to assert yourself and to be aggressive. And Jesus says, no, the true way up is to be humble and to be dedicated, and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, Jesus here is speaking from an eternal perspective. That's why he can turn this whole system of the world upside down, because he's not just speaking from a worldly perspective. He is speaking from the value system of heaven. You see, when you spend your life on Jesus, when you lose your life for Jesus, you're going to gain an eternal reward. And that's what Jesus is talking about. When you look at this life, 
70, 80, 90 years, whatever it is in this life, Jesus says, if you lose it, you're going to gain something that will never expire in heaven, something that will never wear out, where moth and rust will never destroy. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Because even the things that we acquire here, they all have an expiration date, don't they? We've got to tend them and watch over them because they break down. They get ruined. Your investments can go under. Companies can go bankrupt. Stock markets can crash. Currencies can go out of value or become hyperinflated. There is nothing sure in this world. And Jesus is saying, if you lose your life, if you serve me, you will gain a reward that will never be destroyed. He's talking about heaven. Jesus said in Luke 2, 22, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. You see, he says, when we are in this world persecuted for him, that's when we are blessed because he is storing up reward for us in heaven that will last for all of eternity. And that's why Jesus can say, Lose your life for my sake, and you will gain it, and you will save it. Verse 25, Jesus, or Luke says here that Jesus says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? What profit? If you gain the whole world, and yet you yourself are destroyed. There's that story. You may have heard it. I don't know if it's true or not but it involves a genie, so I'm probably not true. But the rich, uh, wealthy businessman, uh, business tycoon, he met up with a genie, and the genie said, I'll give you one wish. And the genie said, uh, okay, name your wish, and it's yours. And the business tycoon said, this is easy. I just want a copy of the Wall Street Journal one year from today. Just give me a Wall Street Journal one year in advance. I'll know all the stock prices, all the indexes, I'll know the commodity prices, I'll know the bond yields and the bond rates. I mean, I will have everything at my fingertips. I'll make huge, big bets this year, and I'll become the richest man in the world in one year. That's what I want. The genie said, sure enough. Put down on the table a copy of the Wall Street Journal one year to that day in advance. And he was so excited. He tore through that paper, and he got to the business section and opened it up. And there was his big picture business tycoon dies today. Wow. What good would it be to have that foreknowledge knowing that it would lead to your death? And that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is giving us the eternal perspective here, and he's talking about the soul. And do you recognize that all of us have a soul and it's eternal? Your spirit will live somewhere forever. You're an eternal being. God created a soul in you or a spirit in you that will go on and on and never end. Sometimes people will say, why is there a hell? And why would God allow people to go to hell? I mean, why isn't there a heaven for those that love the Lord? And if people reject the Lord, they're just annihilated. They go into soul sleep or annihilation or whatever it is, and they no longer exist. That would be the more humane thing to do, wouldn't it? But the soul is eternal. When God creates a soul, it lives forever. The question is, where is it going to live? And the Bible is very clear on that. Jesus was very clear on that. Every single soul, every single spirit will either be in heaven or in hell. There are only two places. There's not a third option. There's not five options. There's not ten places to go. It's either heaven or hell. 
Either you will spend all of eternity worshiping the Lord, blessing the Lord, and serving the Lord in heaven, or you will suffer the punishment of your sin for all of eternity in hell. That's it. The Bible is very clear on that. Matthew tells us that Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus said when you weigh out this whole thing and you look at all of the wealth in the world, if you could get all of it, every single ounce of gold in this world, every single ounce of silver, every bit of fiat currency, everything in your hand, every deed to every piece of real estate, if you got it all, but you had to exchange your soul for it, what would it be worth to you? He's saying it would be a bad deal. It would be a bad deal to trade your soul for all of that. You see, if this life is all there is, if we just live this three score and ten, four score, and this is it, and we all die, and there's nothing after this, my advice to you is go out and live the good life according to this world's definitions. Go out and do all that you can to maximize your money, your wealth, your power, your position, your success. Do what you can, because this is all there is. Live for today and don't think about eternity. Do what you can to enjoy everything in your flesh, even if you have to step on people and abuse people and use people. Do it, because this is it. Maximize and secure your greatest happiness at the expense of everyone else. Certainly, if this life is all there is, don't waste your time sitting in a church. Don't be here in one of these hard pews. What a waste of time that is. Go watch the ball game. Go do something else, really. But if this life is just the beginning of eternity, then live for heaven. Because this life is short. It's tiny. Just a little speck on the spectrum that goes on beyond our imagination. We can use the numbers, but our mind still can't wrap around it. One billion, a hundred billion, one trillion years from now. If that's eternity, live this short life for the Lord and for His glory because all of eternity is what matters. You see, our soul, our spirit are eternal and we are to invest for eternity. It's just like a father teaching his son to invest. You know, if you've got, if you've got kids, you've got young ones. My son is 14 right now. And uh, I remember when he was about 10 years old, you know, when kids start to collect some money, they do some chores around the house, they start to get, you know, a little income from, from dad, a little uh, um, allowance, thank you, <laughs> a little allowance, the word was there, it was just stuck, or they sell something and they get it, or they go out and get a little job and they get a little bit of money. Father takes his son aside and says, listen, son, you need to give some of that to the Lord, you need to save some of it, and then you can spend some of it. And that just makes no sense to a 10-year-old boy, does it? What do you mean? Okay, maybe I can understand it's the right thing to give some of it to the Lord, Dad. But why would I save some aside and not spend it? Why not just spend it all? I mean, look at how many toys there are to spend money on, Dad. I want to have all these great things, and it's my money. The dad says, listen, you're not always going to be 10. Trust me, there is going to be a time in life where you're going to need to have money to buy things that you need and not necessarily want. And that's a foreign concept to a 10-year-old boy, isn't it? And you tell him, someday, son, you're going to need an education. 
You need a job. You're going to have some money set aside. Someday you're going to get married and you're going to need to buy things like a refrigerator, a washer, and a dryer. That is like speaking a different language to a 10-year-old boy. He doesn't know what you're talking about. A washer and a dryer and a refrigerator. Dad, are you crazy? And you just take him aside. You say, son, trust me. You're not always going to be 10. I'm going to teach you how to save your money now. And that's what Jesus is doing to us here. You're not always going to live on planet Earth. This is just the beginning of eternity. Invest for the future. Invest for your eternal life. Don't live every single day for the day. Don't live for this world. Live for me. Live for the gospel. Live for heaven. Look at how many people today are trading their soul for money. Even if you make it to the top. And there are a lot of people in the top. Look at how many people are trading their souls for billions of dollars. I mean, obviously, they're doing it for a lot less than that. But look at the people who have even made the billions. As I was going on the computer and looking at some of this stuff, I went on to the Forbes list of billionaires. And there are a lot of names on there that you would recognize because they're in the news. And I knew a lot of these names. So I went on to that list of billionaires in the world. Bill Gates was number two. It's $67 billion. Pretty impressive, $67 billion. Of course, from Microsoft. Warren Buffett was number three, $53 billion from Berkshire Hathaway. Larry Ellison was number, I forget what number he was, but he was pretty high on the list with $43 billion from Oracle Software. The Walton family from Walmart, I mean, every time you go to Walmart, you're supporting the Walton family. They must be the wealthiest family in the world because they had three on the list. They had a 28 billionaire, a 27 billionaire, and a 26 billionaire. So they're kind of in a race to see who's going to be on the highest on the list there. Very successful family. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, $27 billion. Looks like New York's overpaying its mayors. That's what I'm thinking. A lot of names on that list. But as I went down that list and I I read the whole thing and I went all the way down and, and looked at all these billionaires. Now, I don't know them all and I don't know their hearts. I'm not casting judgment on all of them. I'm just saying that out of all of the names that I recognized as I went down the list, there was not one single name that I've ever heard associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all billionaires. They have a big platform in this world. If they are Christians, they, should, they could certainly speak out about Christ and his word. And I didn't recognize a single name associated anything with the things of the gospel and the testimony of Christ. How sad. They've made their billions. People have made their millions. And yet they've traded their soul to do it. And Jesus is saying, what good is that? What good is that? What good is it to live 70, 80, 90, 95 years in opulence if you're going to spend all of eternity in hell? Because what good is your money in hell? Jesus is saying, yes, there is a cost to being a disciple in this world for me. You're going to pay a lot to live for me, to be faithful to me in this world. But the reward is going to be for all of eternity. It is everlasting life and it is everlasting blessing. And it will not perish. It will not expire. If you serve me, if you live for me, that reward is waiting for you. But if you serve yourself, then your reward is only here. That's all you're going to have. And you will suffer eternal loss. You see, when you go to an international airport, let's say you go to San Francisco International Airport and you're on your way to an international destination. They have all of these, in all these international airports, they have a place to exchange your cash to get foreign currency. 
You can go in and take your, your greenbacks, your U.S. dollars, slap them down, and they'll give you the exchange. They take a little off the top. That's how they make their money, and they give you an exchange. So if you're going to Paris, you want euros. If you're going to London, you want British pounds. If you're going to Moscow, you want rubles. If you're going to Tokyo, you want yen, and on the list goes. You've got to have the foreign currency that is respected and accepted in that country. Because when you land, you may need to hire a taxi or, or get something to eat, but you want to have that currency in your hand upon arrival. Same thing is true in heaven. Same thing is true in heaven. Heaven has a currency. But it's not the U.S. dollar. Trust me on that. It's not the U.S. dollar. It's not gold. They use gold to pave the streets in heaven. Okay? Not a big deal in heaven. The currency is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the obedience that comes out of that. And there will be a lot of people, no doubt, that will show up someday on that judgment day before God and they'll be patting themselves down thinking that they've got currency that God's going to respect and honor. Certainly, I've got something here that you want, Lord. Uh, um, I did a lot of good things on earth. I I was nice to a lot of people. I I helped people. I, I did good things for the community. I said nice things. I, I went to church every once in a while. On, on Christmas and Easter, I was there. Certainly, you can respect some of these things. I was going to say, there's only one currency here. It's faith in my son, Jesus. That's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that pays, so to speak. And the obedience that came out of that faith. You see, as Christians, we need to keep an eternal perspective. Yes, we need money to pay the bills. Of course we do. We all need to put a roof over our head and have insurance and vehicles and you know, transportation and clothing and all these kinds of things. Of course we do. But that's not the most important, is it? It's the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the currency that is accepted in heaven. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Do not trade your soul to get the money and the gain and the wealth and the riches here in this life when that won't matter for eternity. Live for me. Serve me. Worship me, sacrifice for me, and watch the reward that I have saved for you in heaven. Jesus says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. Jesus is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming, and I will come in glory. Now, in his first coming... He came as a little baby in a manger, didn't he? People love that picture of Jesus. That's very socially acceptable out there, isn't it? A little baby in a manger. That's not threatening at all. And so we all like the little baby Jesus. But you're not going to see in too many gift shops Jesus coming back on a white horse with a sword, cutting down all of his enemies. That Jesus we really don't like. We don't like warrior Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm coming back again. And when I come back again, I will come in my glory. And his first coming... His glory was veiled in human flesh. He looked just like you and me. He was a a person, a a man, a regular man. You recognize there's no glow about Jesus? And I know the artists love to depict Jesus with some sort of glow or some sort of halo. He didn't have that. He was just a regular guy. And he wasn't European. I've seen a lot of pictures of Jesus. And I'm European. I mean, I obviously don't have anything against Europeans. But Jesus wasn't blue-eyed, blonde hair, you know, looking like he just got off the beach, you know, with a surfboard. No, Jesus was a Jewish man. He had dark hair, dark beard, and he had a beard. That's the other funny thing to see Jesus clean-shaven in these pictures. No, he had a beard. He was a Jewish man. And he looked like anyone else. And many men with beards say amen to that. (laughs) Jesus looked like 
any regular Jewish man of the time. But he says, when I'm coming back, it won't be that way. I will come back in my glory. And I will have my saints with me. And I will be riding as a judge coming into this world. And I will rule and I will reign. And all those who stand against me will be cut down. That's Jesus. And he says, when I come, if you were ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. But if you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. I will call you my own. I will say, this one is mine. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You know, there are times, if we're honest, we have all, as Christians, felt ashamed of Jesus. I'm ashamed to admit that. But there are all times when we've been in a crowd, we've been in an environment, and we think, oh, don't call me out as the Christian here. I'm kind of embarrassed. We're just afraid of being ostracized. I mean, none of us as Americans, at least as far as I know, are officially persecuted. None of us, by confessing Christ, will lose our homes tonight. None of us will be dragged off to jail tonight. None of us will be put to death or have our children taken from us. Those are realities that exist all across this globe. We're just afraid of being socially ostracized. But there are times that we all feel ashamed of Christ. But we can't. We've got to put that behind us. By the power of his Holy Spirit living inside of us, we need not be ashamed of Christ. The Apostle Paul, remember, prayed for boldness. And you look at that and you think, if there's anyone in the entire New Testament that did not need boldness, it would be the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was the guy who stood and gave a faithful testimony of Christ to two Roman governors in Palestine, Felix and Festus. This guy was fearless. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but we feel that he may even have gone to Rome and testified before Caesar himself. And yet Paul says, pray for me for boldness. There's that temptation to fall back and not to be bold about the gospel. Oh, that the Lord may make me bold. Paul told Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, he said, if you suffer for Christ, do not be ashamed. Jesus here is exhorting us to stand strong and to confess him here in this life. If you confess me here, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. You see, Jesus is exhorting us to stand strong. And yes, he says, there is a price to pay. Jesus doesn't deny that fact that we will pay a very heavy price in this world for living after him. He's very upfront. Yes, you're going to pay a price. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. That is the cost of deny discipleship. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. And you have to follow me. There is a price to pay. Count the cost. But in the end, when he comes in his glory, he will confess us and he will pour his reward upon us. And we will be glorified with him for all of the rest of eternity. You see, Jesus, quite honestly, he puts us in a difficult place in this world, doesn't he? Because the world hates him, they hate us. And they hate us. I just read this past week in the news that one of the groups, I think it was the ACLU, I'm not sure which group it was, maybe it was another group, was suing to have a cross removed out of a veteran's cemetery. And the judge agreed, yes, pull that cross down. They actually go into a cemetery to pull down a cross because it's so offensive. Quote, offensive. How disgusting. But that's how much they hate Jesus. They want to remove all symbols 
of Jesus in this world. Notice even now as we approach Christmas how many people will not say Merry Christmas anymore. I even heard this uh, last week for the first time in my life. I heard somebody say, Merry Holidays. Like, nobody says Merry Holidays. I mean, come on. You had to work really hard to say that. It's Merry Christmas. They want to get rid of the word Christ in anything and everything. This world does hate us. And Jesus knows that we're going to pay a price. But he says it's just temporary. It's just temporary. If you stand strong, if you live for me, if you confess me, if you submit to my lordship in this world, in the end, it will all be worth it. Your reward will be great, and it will be eternal, and it will never, ever end. There's a Latin phrase, semper fidelis, and it means always faithful. And it's the motto of the United States Marine Corps. It was adopted by the 8th Commandant, Colonel Charles McCauley, in 1883 because he felt that that would be the best model that would describe the attitude in the heart of Marines. To always be faithful to country, corps, and fellow Marine. And it's even part of the emblem. For those of you that know a little bit about the Marine Corps. <laughs> Eagle, globe, and anchor. And in that eagle's beak, there is a banner that says, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. And the idea is that no matter what you're asked to do, You are to be faithful to your country, your corps, and your fellow Marine, even if it means the sacrifice of life. And that has happened throughout our nation's history. Men have died for country, corps, and their fellow Marine. And as special as as that bond is, and it is a very special bond, as countless Marines have fought and died for that, that motto, Semper Fidelis, nothing unites us like the blood of Christ. Jesus died for us. He spilled his blood for us. He paid a price that we could never pay. And now we are brought together in him. And so we are called to always be faithful, semper fidelis in Christ. If the Marines can cry that out for their worldly pursuits, their worldly glory, their worldly loyalties, how much more can we cry out always faithful to the Lord because he has saved us for heaven for all of eternity? He gave everything for us, and he deserves complete loyalty from us. When he calls us to deny ourselves, we are to deny ourselves. We are to take the second place and put him first. We are not to trust and believe in our own righteousness, but only the righteousness that Christ gives. When he calls us to take up our cross, we are to take up our cross and be willing to die for him and to suffer for him in this world because he saved us. He paid it all so that we might live when he calls us to follow him and to live after the model that he has given and to walk in his footsteps, then we are to obey him and to live in complete obedience for him. You see, Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And he tells us up front, what is the cost of discipleship? Jesus said, I paid it all for you. Now you be willing to lay down your life for me. I earned Jesus says, the salvation for you. Now you be willing to pay the cost of discipleship every single day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, for giving your son. That Jesus came and lived in human flesh, coming to die so that we might live. And Lord, we're so grateful and so thankful for that fact that our sins can be forgiven, and that we're not part of this world that is perishing, and that we'll never face your judgment. 
but that we will stand before you righteous, not because we're so good, but because you're so good, Lord. Thank you for your grace, your unending, your unequaled grace that you pour out upon us, Lord. We love you. We say thank you. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would always be faithful to you, that we would be a a group of believers in this body who would lift each other up, that we'd be faithful to one another as we spur one another on toward good works in your name, Jesus, the obedience that comes from faith, and that we would stand strong. And no matter what this world throws against us or throws at us, I pray, Lord, that we would be ready to accept it as the cost of discipleship, knowing that the greatest reward is you, and when we place our faith in you by your grace, by your divine revelation, Lord, that we will have you, the greatest reward of all, for all of eternity. And we thank you that we can be called by your name, Lord. We love you. We ask for your blessing. We ask for a wonderful week in you. In Jesus' name, amen.